Hi, welcome to another episode of Serve the People's Story. And with me are my guests, Andrew. Say hi, Andrew. Oh, hey. Judah. Hi. And Summer. Howdy, hey. Would you all mind introducing yourselves? Uh, go first, Judah. Hi, I'm Judah. I'm here to talk about stuff. Okay, that's enough. Andrew. Uh, Andrew, Ginger, no soul. Next. All right, and Summer. I guess I'm the most normal one here, but um, I'm Summer. I'm here to help Connor out. All right. Uh, well, there we go. And I'm Connor. So we've got a show to get to, so let's go ahead and get started with it. So to lay out the framework of what happened in the last episode. So this dude named Sun Yat-sen decides to lead a revolution in China after centuries of, imper of imperial tyranny, uh, years of foreign inf influence, uh, years of European colonialism and imperialism, and after constant military failures of the Qing Empire, uh, he leads a revolution called the 1911 Revolution. And with that revolution, it establishes the Republic of China, which was a, for its time, an extremely progressive uh, government. And with that, they needed to have negotiations with the remaining Qing forces. So they had to go through negotiations with this dude named Wan Shikai, who didn't care about the revolution, but he sided with the revolutionaries, which the revolutionaries called themselves the nationalists. They were called the, uh, Nash the Chinese Nationalist Party, AKA the Kuomintang, or the KMT for short. Uh, so Wan Shikai, he leads the negotiations and as part of the negotiations, Sun Yat-sen has to set, step down as uh, president and Wan Shikai is elected to the presidency. Uh, but he's greedy, he goes drunk with power and he decides to dissolve parliament and he declares himself emperor where he only rules for 86 days before he has to abdicate the throne and then soon dies. Uh, this leads to a huge schism in China where all sorts of power brokers in the nation have to compete in order to gain power and take Wan Shikai's place. Uh, and this is called the Warlord Era. And it was about 10 to 12 years of constant fighting between small little cliques and factions with uh, multiple warlords amassing armies and creating their own nation, all with the overall goal of unifying China under their own rule. And after about 10 years or so, the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, uh, led by this uh, dude named General Kong Chiang Kai-shek. They are able to reunite China through a long military campaign called the Northern Expedition. And the Northern Expedition ends in 1926 with the majority of China under nationalist rule. Uh, a part of the nationalists, the Kuomintang, were the Chinese communists, the Communist Party of China. Uh, 
and they were called the CP, CPC back then. People call them the CCP nowadays, and there's a distinction there, and I'll get into that. Um, so after the Northern Expedition, the communists, they were trying to influence the nationalists to, in, to introduce more left-wing policies. And let's note, they were called nationalists, but they weren't nationalists in like the jingoist sense, like we think of. It was not a necessarily left-wing or like a right-wing goal. It was sort of like a shared goal between many different political factions and ideologies. So the communists, they were allied with the nationalists at first. But Chiang Kai-shek and his allies were not very happy with the left-wing aspects of the Nationalist Party. And so because of that, they lead something called the Shanghai Massacre, where after some scuffles with communists and nationalists, uh, the nationalist government decides to start uh, taking random people that were accused of being communists, uh, and they just start massacring them. Like they'll, like, they'll drag them out of their homes and shoot them in the head, ex execution style, so on and so forth. It's very brutal. And Jesus it, Christ. Yeah, I know, right? It's absolutely horrifying. And that's not the only, that's not the only one that happens. Uh, that was just one of the many purges that were to come. And overall, these purges, they would be called the White Terror. Um thousands tens of thousands maybe even hundreds of thousands of people were uh massacred in these purges that were led by chiang kai-shek and the nationalists and of course the communists they were not very happy with this right you would presume that yeah, yeah. i mean yeah yes. i wouldn't be hurt either i wouldn't like to be shoot shot in the head thank you yeah i don't think anybody would like to be shot in the head that's so, not a nice thing to do so after that happens, um, so after that happens, the communists, they decide, okay, we're done with the nationalists. We're going to start doing our own thing. And of course, per Chinese tradition, they start an uprising in the city of Nanchang. Um, this is called the August 1st Uprising. This is officially the start of the Chinese Civil War. This is what many historians will call the first, the starting day of the Chinese Civil War. This is the uh, thing that starts the whole thing. Um, the communists at this time, they didn't have a official army yet. Uh, they just had their party and they had a few armed wings, uh, but they quickly mobilized themselves so that they could stop the nationalists from just purging all of them and the thing that they do is they they amass up like a small untrained army and they surround the city of Nanchang uh, and after that they attack the city from all four sides and they're able to claim the city after only four hours of fighting but as I said they didn't really have a whole lot of training and they were poorly equipped compared to the nationalists. So they were very quickly uh, routed out of the city and they had to flee. And this would be kind of a tradition for this episode, this timeline that I'm laying out for this stage of the Chinese Civil War. Um, 
they had to retreat and they were not able to hold the city. And so while this is happening, uh, and a little bit later on, there's a little fella that will be pretty important in the future for me to talk about this conflict. And that's uh, Mao Zedong. So Mao Zedong, he was the son of a pro prosperous villager and uh, the village of Shaoshan Hunwan, or however you pronounce that, I'm bad with Chinese names. Um, he read a lot in his early age. He worked at a university, and that's how he was able to be introduced to socialist principles, uh, specifically Marxism-Leninism. Uh, and he was a supporter of the Soviet Union. And in his youth, he joined the Communist Party. And so he was chosen to be the leader of the of the Autumn Harvest Uprising. And what the Autumn Harvest Uprising was, was it was an insurrection of, so basically what happened was Mao and his, and a group of his followers, they went into uh, the villages of, they went into the villages, some villages in Hunan and Zhengzi provinces, uh, and they rallied up the, the local peasants. And the peasants were very sympathetic to the communist cause because, of course, the communists, they promised things like land held in common and fair wages and uh, stuff like that. And so they were able to amass an army. And Mao, he led this insurrection in these provinces so that they could establish a Soviet. Now, a Soviet, you might have heard that name, the Soviet Union. Uh, a Soviet is a workers' council. That's, that's the translation. So whenever you hear somebody refer to a Soviet, that is supposed to be a workers' council. And Mao and his forces, they're able to establish what is called the Hunan Soviet, uh, which was somewhat prosperous, but it very quickly fell. Um, so that fell. And alongside when that was happening, there was another uprising that was going on, uh, the Guangzhou uprising. Uh, the, unlike the other one, which was somewhat successful, uh, the Guangzhou uprising was a totally failed uprising. Uh, the nationalists, they very quickly and decisively won against the communists. The communists, they were able to inflict heavy casualties upon the nationalists, but they were not able to uh, hold the city and they had to flee to the countryside. So, and note, I need to go back to the Autumn Harvest Uprising. So the, autumn, the reason why the Autumn Harvest Uprising is relevant is because this is the start of Mao's uh, military career. His, uh, and spoiler alert, he becomes the leader of the People's Republic of China after this whole ordeal ends. So I just gave some spoilers there, don't be mad at me. Um, so Mao, he would later become famous for developing uh, multiple revolutionary militant 
theories like how to wait like if you were a communist revolutionary and you were going to wage a revolution in a country such as china uh these are some strategies that you would uh need to employ um and he becomes one of the key military strategists of the communist party and then later the communist red army and then later the people's liberation army which is the standing army of the people's republic of china today um and he comes up with all sorts of weird concepts. Uh, one of those is mobile mobile warfare, which contrasts with guerrilla warfare, which guerrilla warfare is very decentralized, very unorganized, and is centered around sabotage and quick ambushes. Uh, Mao, he implements uh, mobile warfare, which what that is, is essentially one large army would would be very mobile they wouldn't have a lot of heavy equipment but they'd be able to move from place to place very quickly and eventually this is going to this would be employed to wage what he would call a protracted people's war where they would go from village to village and they would recruit people uh gain people sympathetic to the cause uh gain food supplies whenever they would move from village to village um and slowly they'd be able to amass enough forces to wage a full-out revolution. Um, but in the process, things would be very protracted, hence the name Protracted People's War. Uh, so that's sort of the, that's the main reason why I'm covering Mao and his strategies, because it will be very relevant later on in this episode. So there's the massacres that happen and because of that the communists they have a few failed uprisings and because they fail they have to undergo a period of insurgency um and like i said they implement something called mobile warfare where they do not dissolve their armies to go bleed into the jungles or whatever uh not like how uh, the the Viet Cong did during the Vietnam War, or how nowadays multiple Islamic insurgent groups do it in the Middle East. Uh, everything was still consolidated, but it was very mobile. So, all of this stuff, uh, the communists are not in a very good position at this point. Communism never really is. Yeah. Uh, yeah, things will not be very good for China, uh, especially for the communists, until pretty later on. Uh, if you're a communist in China at this point, things are not very fun. Um, so they have to go through this period of insurgency where they moved from place to place to place to place to place. Uh, they never, they would never be sought, they would never be in one place because the communists at this time, they would have soldiers and they would have a few, you know, artillery pieces and some horses and all of that. But overall, most of the communists at this time would be the Red Army, was just a bunch of people with some clothes on their backs, a red flag, and a gun. While contrary to the contrary, the nationalists, they had tanks airplanes uh they had mobile 
um, motorized uh, soldiers, mobilized in infantry. And because of that, the communists knew for a fact that if they got into a direct confrontation with the nationalists and the nationalist revolutionary party, nationalist, excuse me, the nationalist revolutionary army, AKA the NRA, not the NRA here in the United States, um, the nationalist revolutionary army, if they got into a direct confrontation with them, they would be totally annihilated. Uh, so their main option was to just move from place to place and try to evade the nationalists as long as possible. Um, but, however, that cannot continue forever. And after many, many years, about six years or so of constant pursuit, the nationalists are able to encircle the communists through five different encirclement campaigns. And eventually, they are able to entirely surround the communists. And so the communists, they are faced with a very crucial decision. And these are their options. They have two options. Either one, they could all surrender and probably all be massacred. And Not a very good option. Yeah, not a very good option. Uh, you know, have all, you know, probably them and their families be uh, executed or sent to labor camps uh, and have their communist revolution entirely fail or they could try to escape. Neither are very good, but I'd take the at least try to escape route because then, then you at least got a chance. Maybe not a very big chance, yes. but a chance. Okay, so let's pretend that we're we are the Red Army for a second. So Andrew, you there? Okay. I got a question to ask you. So with these options placed in front of you, you have a heavily equipped, pretty advanced army surrounding you totally. Like you have two options. You could either sit there and uh die because they'll eventually uh, move in and totally annihilate you. Two, you could surrender, be executed probably, and have your entire family either executed or sent to labor camps. Or three, you could try to escape. What's, okay. what's your plan? I would definitely try to escape. Okay. So, Judah. Judah gone. Yes. So you have two. You have three options. You're the communists. One. Fine. Yeah. One. You could uh, sit there like a sitting duck and die. Two. You could surrender and die. Or I could try to escape. You I could would try to escape. Probably go. You'll with probably escaping. die. You'll probably die trying to escape. I'll probably die in every instance. The escaping is probably the best chance. Even if it's not great, it's still better than the other two. Well, that's exactly what the communists thought. And so commenced the very infamous Long March. Now, Long March. Munet, as somebody who is in, very interested in history, whenever you hear something called uh, the Long March... It's never good. Yeah, that's, it's, know, never think, good. <laughs> it's never good. It's never good. Gives me a Trail of Tears vibe. Yeah. Yeah, whenever... You, 
in history, whenever there's a reference to a very long walk, it's usually never good. Like the Trail of Tears, <laughs> uh, the Baton Death March, uh, where um, American prisoners of war were forced to march all the way from where they were captured to their prison camps uh, with the purpose of trying to starve, uh, starve them to death or uh, uh, have them die of thirst. Um, because the prison camps that they had were too small to accommodate everybody. Uh, so they would, you know, systemically just kill people. Like if they stumbled out of line, then they would bring them over and they would chop their heads off. Uh, stuff like that. Pretty, pretty bad stuff. Whenever you yeah. hear a reference to a long walk. Uh, history in, is in never history, tied. It's never that good. And it's the same thing with the long march. So... The communists, they have this deliberation, and of course they come up with the lo most logical answer, and that is to get the HE double hockey sticks out of Dodge. So, uh, this commences the Long March. Now, the Long March isn't one specific action, but it's a long series of them, but they all sort of... They all sort of correlate with one another. Well, yeah, um, that, that would make sense. I mean, March wouldn't be exactly the thing I would be doing if I was trying to escape. Well, I mean, you're a standing army, so you can't necessarily just have an entire army. You can't just tell them, like, okay, run over here. Uh, you, need to, you need to be somewhat... Uh, you need to be somewhat organized. So... So the communists, they form up and they decide to make a very daring and dashing uh, escape. So on October 16th, 1934, about 130,000 soldiers, a mix of soldiers and paramilitaries uh, under the communists attack the line of Kuomintang soldiers they they attack their siege perimeter uh, and they're able in a very suicidal attack they're able to break through uh, in a very short amount of time they they do exactly what i said they would do you know get the he double hockey sticks out of dodge and so with that these people they're, they're still in a pickle they're in a huge pickle in fact they're in more of a pickle than they were before they left but at least this time, they actually have a chance of surviving. Um, so, of course, they weren't able to really plan out the whole thing. Uh, so everything was just sort of like determined on the way there. Uh, but they, but they, but they, they, they were able to make it out. They were able to escape the nationalists. They were able to escape the NRA. And now they actually have a chance of surviving. Now their goal is to find somewhere where they could sit down, fortify themselves, and uh, entrench themselves so they, continue, so they can continue to fight. Um, but that process would be a very difficult one. It would be a very difficult and daunting task to achieve. And so... It's a very long, you know, and this goes for years and years. 
them trying to move from place to place, not necessarily in the same way that they were before, because this was a lot more desperate. Um, the, the, the full events of the Long March are pretty uh, long for me to describe in full. So I'm just going to give a bit of a brief summary. Uh, essentially, what, would ha what kept on happening is Uh, they would, you know, move from one place and the nationalists, they would show up and then they would have to pick up everything and then move from another place. Nationalists would show up, they'd pick up their guns and then they'd go to another place and this would just keep on happening constantly. Uh, and during this time, a lot of sort of the inner party politics were being resolved. Uh, this is where Mao Zedong finally gains prominence within the party, where, like he's able to gain influence. Uh, he gives multiple speeches and he makes, um, he gains, like I said, he gains influence. And this is sort of setting him up to be the overall leader of the party. Um, he makes a lot of key decisions that lead to this, you know, to the survival of the Red Army. But here's the thing. They lose 50% of their entire army during the That's Long March. 50%. That's not a good number if we don't like losing half of our armies. And you know how they lost half of those people? Death. Well, well yeah, they, they died. Um, but do you know a specific instance in where they died? I'm assuming since it was a death march, exhaustion, starvation, and just generally getting picked off one by one by enemies. Well, yeah, that was another thing that would happen a lot is uh, the nationalists, they would have out, they would be allies with warlords in the area. Uh, and so the warlords, they would be hired to, okay, go over here, pick them off over here, make them scared a little bit, keep them on their toes. And so, but yeah, like they lost like half of their forces during this and they go through like two different leaders of the party until eventually a little man named Mao Zedong, like I kept on referencing, uh, finally gains uh, complete leadership of the Red Army and the Communist Party. Uh, he is now the undisputed leader. So, the communists are not in a very good position, right? If you're a communist at this time, you're not very happy. Not a whole lot, of, not not a whole lot of stuff to hope for because your entire army is just constantly just moving from place to place. You have no, you basically have no idea what you're doing. Um, you're basically. It's like, uh, what's that movie? Uh, National Lampoons, like, like the, the Lampoon movies. Like everything's chaotic, you have no idea what's going on, uh, but like you're about to run out of gas, stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, like, yeah. Like they're, the, the communists are trying to find Wally World. That's what they're trying to do. Um, and dirt, but unlike, uh, but thing is, in the National Lampoon movies, they don't lose half of their family in the process. 
The communists uh, are experiencing the Hebrew experience. <laughs> yeah, this is a bit like an exodus. Yeah, this is definitely that. Um, so. It's Sorry, I'm looking at something at the moment while I'm doing this. Oh, no, that's fine. Um, All right. I think I got it. All right, that's good. Uh, so by some estimates, at the end of the Long March, which ended on October 20th, 1935, uh, the estimated amount was about 8,000 or so people, which you look at an army, 8,000 people is barely enough to make a division. Like that, that's, that's barely any, that's barely anything for an army. Um, but they survived. They were able to meet up with other red army, uh, uh, factions. They were able to entrench themselves in Northern Zhengzi. Uh, but overall, out of all the marches, uh, they had covered over 4,000 miles. They, cro they crossed 24 rivers and 18 mountain ranges. This is over the course of about two years. 4,000 miles, 24 rivers, and 18 mountain ranges lost over half of their forces, but they came out at the end. Uh, there, there's a there's a big reason why the Long March is one of the most infamous moments in uh, Chinese history. Uh, if you go over to China and if you want to do any tourism or anything, one of the things you're going to learn is about the Long March. Because, I mean, Mao would end up becoming a, t a horrible monster of a ruler. But you got to give the man some credit. Like, this is, this is an absolute... Uh, masterclass accomplishment like only uh mirrored by like napoleon at austerlitz so that's where we'll kind of leave off the communists so while all this is happening there's another party that the chinese overall not just uh, the nationalists or the communists, but both of them, they've had a bit of a relationship with in the past. And that's a little bit of empire. Uh, Summer, you like anime, right? Yes, quite a bit. Who? Where does most anime come from? Japan. Well, all anime comes for, from Japan. I could get give you a history lesson on that, but I'm not nope, going nope, to. Nope, nope. Your... Oh, sorry. <laughs> Uh, no, it's fine. Um, so, before what did what was Japan formerly known for? Like, you, like if you ask somebody from the West today, you know, what do you think? What most represents uh, Japan? You would probably hear anime, right? Most times, yeah. Well, if you ask somebody from the 1950s and beforehand they would not be known for anything really good. They'd no. be known for... World War. Yeah. Well, the thing is, the stuff that they did before World War II was probably even more horrid. Um, 
so so the Japanese Imperial Japan they had origin they had gone to war with China back in 1895 be over disputes uh, over a peninsula in Korea and it was one of the main uh, events that led to the revolution because the Japanese they were very for the for the time they were very technologically advanced uh, compared to the to the Chinese armies and and because of that the Japanese they did a total utter route of um, uh, of the Chinese uh, the Japanese they took they completely won uh, and so they were able to gain that uh, and then some other and then some other stuff happened which I'm trying to get into uh, so while all of this is happening there was there was a little thing that happened right a little incident right it's called the Mukden incident and well, the thing is, this doesn't didn't necessarily happen, but it was a staged event by the Japanese. Um, the the Japanese they detonated a small quantity of dynamite uh, close to a railway in the in this uh, town uh, Mukden, uh, and so so the the Japanese they did that right, but they blamed it on Chinese dissident dissidents in uh in manchuria and so because of that they did a little bitty invasion right they did a little bit just a little bitty one uh just a small one because you in know 19, all in 1931 just a, just a little bitty invasion right uh they invade with about thirty thousand to sixty thousand men uh, to in order to put down Chinese dissidents in Manchuria, uh, and it, it's pretty bloody. Uh, yeah, who man, um, and it would only be the start of many. Uh, it'd be the start of many uh, conflicts between the Chinese and the Japanese. And so this is where we're going to be leaving off this episode here. With, nice. Uh, the the communists, despite a lot of uh, things not going in their way, they're still able to make it through. Uh, you know, it, it's the. Uh, have y'all ever seen that movie, The Shawshank Redemption? Yes. Yes. You know that the end at the end. Uh, He's like, um, what's the main character's name? I forgot. But the lawyer guy, right? Like he, like you know, and, and at the end of the movie, he breaks out of jail. And the way that he does it is that he crawls through the hole that he mined through the wall, uh, and then he busts into a sewage pipe, and then he crawls, he crawls through that sewage sewage pipe, uh, and then he washes himself in the river, and that's how he escapes prison. Well, that's mm -hmm. how the Chinese did it. That's how the communist, the Chinese Communist Party did it. Uh, there's the Morgan Freeman narration voice, uh, which he uses a bad word, and I'm not going to use it on the podcast. Uh, but he said, um, "Bad word." 
he crawls through a river of crap and he comes out clean on the other side. And that is how the that's how the communists come out. Because they're extremely weak. They're in no way able to wage like a true uh, protracted people's war. But this very hardens the communists. You know, these people are battle-hardened soldiers now. The people who, you know, after 4,000 miles of marching and constant attacks, uh, you know, starvation, aerial bombardment, these people are very hardened and they are very determined to continue this fight, um, which will come very, very useful after a little thing called the Second Sino-Japanese War. And that's where I'll leave off. Interesting. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah, the, the communists, you got to give them credit sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes. their policies aren't great, but, you know, communism sounds good in theory. Yeah, it sounds I'll, yeah, all I'll get, yeah, I'll invite y'all for the fifth episode whenever I get into China today. It, like after after the civil war well the civil war hasn't really ended that's the it's sort of a part that's a theme in this because there hasn't been a legal end to the civil war um but i i'll get into like oh my god like the cultural revolution uh the great leap forward pretty pretty bad stuff i'll, I'll but i'll invite y'all back for the fifth episode of that i don't know if i'll have different guests but uh, that'll be that'll be determined later in later episodes. Okay, I'd be so interested in joining in other, on other episodes. Yeah. So, what did y'all think about all that? It's interesting. It was really interesting. It was. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird that people don't really cover this aspect because nobody really knows about where all this stuff came from in China. There's barely, we barely ever discussed this stuff. And so I decided to make this podcast. All we know is China bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty much all you hear from uh, everything you hear about China. It's just, uh, uh, they, they've got a huge army and they're bad. That's and they don't like women. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they don't, don't like, like anyone. They don't like more than one children. And they also don't like uh, Uyghur Muslims. Right. Uh, yeah. Um. I, mean, I guess the reason, like, that's uh, one of the reasons that we don't learn this stuff is that, you know, we don't, they, the government doesn't really want us to feel sorry at all for these people who went through all this crap. Yeah, uh, because, they, I mean, the con like I said, you got to give them credit. This is, I, I don't think that there's a proper movie about the long march. And there should be like that I mean, is an incredible that's an incredible military feat um i don't think there is one in western culture but i'm not sure about their culture you know like chinese culture that you know we're not the only ones that make movies i'm sure they probably oh, yeah, made a movie. They, they have their own sort of entertainment industry yeah but i'm not sure if they have a movie about it or not which they probably don't because they probably want to cover it up I mean, again, like, I don't know why there isn't a movie about this stuff, because this is, this is a huge feat. Not necessarily just the Long March, but the fact that 
they were able to just amass an army out of nothing. And eventually, after literal decades of fighting, they were able to beat the nationalists and establish their own people's republic. And, you know, like I said, um, and of course, to, you know, to say that, you know, the communists committed many atrocities because, because they did, they, they committed many atrocities. Uh, not really a whole lot of people in this conflict were very innocent. Uh, like, like I covered it in the beginning of this episode, the white terror, uh, that was bad. That, that was horrifying. Um, because I was entirely state sanctioned. That, that was a planned massacre of political dissonance. And as I will cover in the next episode about the Sino, Second Sino-Japanese War, I mean, oh my God. Like, like to give, just give one spoilers and this is how I'll end off the episode. You want to know um, what one of the events of the Second Sino-Japanese War is called? Yes, sure. I would very much like to. Tell me, Connor. Tell us. You have to tell us, Connor. 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 Like, oh, like, just, just listen to this name. The Rape of Nanjing. Jesus Christ. Okay. okay <laughs> like, like, take all the things I talked about beforehand, right? They're covering what the Japanese did alongside the events of the Chinese Civil War. And if you're going to call something the rape of a city, that tells you how bad that is. Like, yeah. oh my yeah. god. But yeah, that's how yeah. I end off this episode. So, tune in next time for another episode of Serve the People Story, and I will see you next time. Bye, y'all. Bye, Connor. Bye. Bye.